It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. moment, 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 moment. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Mike Up, an unapologetic podcast based right here in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden, and this episode is something I've been dying to do for some time. It's a bit self-indulgent in that I've invited uh, fellow activists to share their thoughts on the current political climate here in the Southeast and specifically South Carolina, but um, today's episode does feature the voices of my friends. So yeah, they're my friends, but they're also very, very politically activated, very engaged femmes uh, who identify, who self-identify as queer. And also, um, you know, you'll get to learn who they are and what they stand for. Uh, One voice, the first voice you'll hear from is one that I had, I I did feature in a previous episode. Um, If some of you who have been listening do recall, um, we lost a sister, a member of the trans community, um, who was uh, right right here in South Carolina, uh, in Bishopville, I believe. Uh, her name was Sasha Wall. And my friend Naomi, uh, she's a member of the trans community here in South Carolina. Uh, she's gender nonconforming. She's awesome. She's an intellectual. She is uh, an incarnation of James Baldwin meets Audre Lorde meets... I don't know, you name it, name a goddess. (laughs) Um, She's just amazing and um, far beyond her years. And so her voice, if you recall, was featured at a rally uh, where I recorded. Um, You know, she was the coordinator of that rally that called attention to uh, trans women of color uh, and the murder rate and the the violence that they're exposed to. Um, And I never really circled back to feature her exclusively or give her uh, give her more time. So you'll hear from Naomi. You'll also hear from my friend, uh, Lexi Coburn. Uh, Lexi is a a staffer with Indivisible. And if a lot of you are familiar with the recent movement over the last couple of years, you you know that Indivisible is a nonpartisan uh, outfit based in D.C. Um, And they really pretty much try to galvanize communities and uh, help engaged community members uh, arm them with the tools to quote unquote fight in the resistance. And so you'll hear from Lexi as well. Um, I think it's important to hear perspectives or hear the thoughts of folks that don't tend to, to get featured in our daily press um, on maybe cable news. And that is members of, like I said earlier, the LGBTQIA plus community, as well as just black women, black women here in the black belt. And as we, um, at the time of this recording, it's uh, October 22nd, it's uh, two weeks before the midterms election in November. Uh, Today, I'm preparing to uh, host the Black Voters Matter Fund. And yes, it's it's a special day. It's a special time right now um, where we're all getting politicized and activated and motivated, but we have to hold space for women and especially black women. And that's what this episode is aiming to do. And hopefully I'll bring you some more voices from the community, voices that you don't tend to hear from. So uh, just sit back. This is going to be a longer episode, but I think it's one you need to hear. So I hope you enjoy it. uh, And I'll see you on the other side. Take care.
Hi Tamika. <laughs> it's so nice to it's so nice to talk to you. I haven't spoken to you in so long. Aww. We have not got to be together and feed off of each other's energy in so long and me being in Facebook jail has not helped whatsoever. No, I know, I miss you. <laughs> I miss you too. But um I am happy to hear your voice and you are exactly who I wanted to talk to. Um I really wanted to just create an episode for Mike up where okay. uh, yeah for where we just have a real conversation um you know how noisy and maybe <laughs> how like crazy facebook is but yeah yeah but i really really want to just know what are you thinking about as these last two weeks start to wind down before the 2018 midterms what's on your mind right now um, I'm thinking that we're in trouble. <laughs> oh, wow. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that we're in trouble. Um, and it's not that I'm being pessimistic. I'm very optimistic about the races that, um, that are, that are happening. And uh, oh, oh God, I'm so optimistic with the activism and organizing and, um, and, um, independent grassroots voter mobilization that's going on. I'm so excited and optimistic about that, but I'm um, saying we're in a lot of trouble because of just the way that things have been um, shaping up uh, federally. And so even with all of my excitement, even with all the optimism, um, I think we still have to be uh, very clear that we do have some difficult and dark days ahead of us. So, so um, who specifically or what, what group of people do you think is most at risk? Um... It's it's always the same. Like when when the um, the cards of power gets stacked up against us, it's always going to be people of color. It's going to be um, gender and sexual minorities. Um, increasingly, it's undocumented people, um, incarcerated people, people who were formerly incarcerated. Um, these groups are the groups that are, um, of course, are being targeted the most. Oh wow! I, I know recently I've seen you um, via other people's uh, social media. Uh, you know pages i've seen you uh work with i um you know work for palestinian causes and of course mm -hmm. um trans rights and trans visibility and trans liberation and also you know for you fi you're fighting for the rights of the incarcerated I, you and kim especially mm -hmm. uh, i've seen you on the front lines with that um ha has there been any one candidate um I, I i wanted to have a conversation with you about perhaps some of the larger or the more statewide races, but mm -hmm. um, is there any one candidate or any one com campaign you hear throughout South Carolina? Do you, you hear them speaking to any of your issues or concerns? In South Carolina, no, oh, wow. no, no, no. Mm. In South Carolina, I'm I'm strategizing. I'm being a tactician about who I and what I put my support behind. But I can't say that I've um that I've felt seen and heard by any candidate that's um that at least has a um has um the the bid for nomination right now. The way that I've been that I felt the same way with like Cynthia Nixon or Stacey Abrams. Yeah, you know what? And um, when you bring up Stacey, because Stacey's campaign is, is really gotten so much attention and also it's gotten my attention i def i've seen you go down and help in canvas i did that was <laughs> that was my that was seriously like one of my best political experiences like i will never forget that weekend it was amazing that's great and, and so yeah she's she's 
definitely um, got my attention. And, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like you. I'm and very, deservingly so. Right. Like you, I'm very, I'm now, I, I think even more so now after the primaries here, I've become very selective as to who I align myself <laughs> with. And Absolutely. I'm, I um, I unofficially decided, I, it's official to me and, and my family, but or whoever is closest to me, but I have officially decided not to ever like be photographed with any candidate anymore. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And um, though I might be behind the scenes in an- So opera. what's the decision behind that? <laughs> um, I left politics years ago and went into really yeah i worked for the secretary of state <laughs> you're, doing a, you're doing a terrible job at keeping <laughs> yourself away <laughs> right I left politics. Look, look, look. let me finish the story <laughs> I, left, I left politics years ago um my first job out of undergrad was with the secretary of state of new jersey and was very disenchanted with working next to the candidate in terms of the democratic machine in new jersey is powerful and just as toxic as any right wing whatever that both sides when there's concentrated power Mm -hmm. that's that's a big problem so i was disenchanted and i guess over the years of working as a retail executive um and and being away and i and i stopped working on my master's in policy i guess i maybe got some sort of amnesia as to how the sausage is made and that's no disrespect to any one candidate that i work with um not at all but you know i i just Mm -hmm. i i felt like my if i'm working with the candidate I'm too close to either one, you know, the, the, the gatekeepers within the party and I need to hold them accountable. Absolutely. So, so um, I'm, I'm better and I'm more effective even for them if I'm um, objective in, in a way. So, but other, the other part of it, and maybe you can, you can um, sympathize with this. is just that a lot of them are just full of shit. <laughs> to put them bluntly i mean that's that's the team yeah it's the team yeah so so let me ask you something so okay we we see stacy we see the gilliam race we see you know mm-hmm. ben jealous we see all these progressive races um you know all up and down the eastern seaboard um and mm-hmm. some you know some scattered over in the midwest and the west coast uh, why is it that South Carolina? Gotta throw my girl Cynthia in there. Yes. Just for no, no, no. Me and you are from the New York metro area, so we definitely <laughs> are feeling Cynthia on another level. But like, but so why is it you got blood red Alabama at least squeaked out a win for Doug Jones? Why is it that in South Carolina you don't feel like perhaps maybe those on the the left can mm. like create can't can't pr- produce an equally energized energized or um enthusiastic choice for us to vote for okay so this has been um a lot this has been where my critical reflection has been resting on um most intensely over the past couple of months so this is what i've been thinking about and thinking um very intensely on um and i think it's twofold i think it's um i think it's one the fact that um so many of the good progressives, radicals aren't running or don't want to run or um, or um, are they, they um, are observing the need for their um, presence and um, talents elsewhere because stuff is just so dire here that they don't feel like they have the opportunity to run at this moment because, you know, they're they are needed in so many other different places. Um, so there's that. There's the fact that um, that the people who need to be running aren't running. And then secondly, um, which um, a lot of people have been kind of um, 
disagreeing with me on, just to put it very, very lightly, um, is the fact that um, this is this is kind of where I've been with my, my tactical mind. This is just where I've been right now, kind of um, assessing electoral politics in South Carolina. Um, we have to kind of like um, be upfront and honest about the fact that in South Carolina we have a um, a civic class that chooses our representatives for us. The civic class represents on any given election outside of a presidential election represents anywhere from nine to 12% of the, the electorate, well, excuse me, of, of the, of the electorate and even less of the population itself. So sometimes like four to 6% of the actual population. So at any given time outside of a presidential election in South Carolina, we have about four to 6% of the people in South Carolina and even less because only one party's um, only one segment of the voters actually gets their candidate there. So even less, to be honest, than four to six percent of people choosing who our representatives are going to be. And so the way that looks like on the Democratic side, and not saying um, and not only looking at the Democratic side because I think that they are the most effective at pushing policy or any, or they're most likable or anything like that. But it's just that. Um, there's not a lot of third party voting going on in South Carolina. So until we get that kind of um, energy in independent and third party um, politics um, for right now, um, uh, the Democratic Party and Republican Party is the, um, they are the, um, the, the, the main focus of my analysis. Mm-hmm. But on the Democratic side, at least, um, like I said, there's a civic class of people who are very informed about politics, um, won't say that they have the best analysis or make the best choices, but they're very informed about politics. They are keeping up to date with what's going on. They're looking at races, they're studying it. They know the candidates personally, um, if not beforehand, then definitely throughout, they'll get to know them during the um, election cycle. Um, they are usually registered Democrats. Um, they um, have, you know, they have a lot of access. Um, they're typically, middle class or upper upper middle class um they're educated they have college degrees they're not working um minimum wage or hourly um so this is what the demographic of this civic class of voters this civic class unfortunately um and this is within that um um nine to twelve percent of people who actually come out to vote outside of a presidential election they have the complete control over the Democratic um, primaries. So whoever speaks to them is the person who's going to win the Democratic primary election. The person that tends to speak to them the most are moderates and liberals. Um, And they, every single time, no matter what the race is, no matter what the issues are, they are going to pick the, the moderate or the liberal because they believe, a lot of them who mostly are white, they believe that in um, the South that you have to pick a moderate or liberal who's going to toe the middle and um, steal um, undecided Republicans, which do not exist. They do not um, exist. Wait, <laughs> stop. I just fucking like posted that on Instagram. Like they don't exist. Like I, I posted, I know you probably, you're not heavy. Well, I don't see you at least heavy on my Instagram feed, but yeah, I don't get Instagram. So okay, I, got you. <laughs> I don't get I, it. I, I, po- I got you. you feel, that's how I feel about Twitter. <laughs> I mean, I get Twitter, but I hate Twitter. Um, <laughs> but no, but like I posted a clip of um, Khalees, uh, I hate you so much right now, uh, the caught out there video. Mm-hmm. But at the end, if you were, you see you a youngin, I'm I'm old. But at the end of Khalees' video, it's a bunch of women taken to the street, women and femmes, like these with like these 
uh, protest signs and she just yes. and I, I said I felt like that articulated how I felt about um, some of the races where they are going they are going crazy trying to get this moderate white uh, yeah. undecided mm-hmm. Republican and like he don't exist boo <laughs> he, don't, but, he don't yeah not yeah. In, in in Trump and in the Republican Republican Party are doing an extremely good job of, of making sure that they don't yeah. by polarizing them around like very um, contentious issues but um, yeah so this um, this civic class of Democratic voters um, based on those demographics that I just gave they are always going to decide with the liberal or the moderate um, and so when they get their pick at who they want to be um, the primary winner, the primary winner then has to, um, you know, has to um, convince the rest of the state or the rest of the district um, outside of the civic class of Democratic voters who can be anywhere from, depending on the race, could be anywhere from like 500 to like, like 1500 people. Um, they have to like convince them that um, you know that I am somebody who you should vote for, and when you and then the people that they always want to go um, requesting votes are always minorities, and so when you have these moderates coming to your door, um, that does not reflect your racial, socioeconomic, um, or lived experience background coming to your door asking you to vote for them. You know, it's like, uh, who are you? Why are you here? Why should I vote for you? And they're going to give you those moderate um, positions that you've heard 20 million times, uh, or as Usher would say, um, you heard them 50, 11 times. <laughs> and, um, you know, and it's not going to energize you or mobilize you. And then um, they just repeat the cycle ad infinitum. And when we get to the actual election day, if it's not a presidential election, then um, it's really difficult to mobilize people around those liberal and moderate, um, those liberal moderate candidates. And then we see like those um, poor election outcomes and poor um, um, mobilization numbers. And then we um, ask, how did this happen? We start blaming black people. We start blaming um, the uh, Latinx community. We start blaming all these minorities when it's the same civic class of democratic um, regulars who are choosing these terrible candidates because they pretty much control the primaries and we end up in the same position over and over and over again. Oh, wow. I uh, You mentioned before you started that piece and before I interrupted you with my with my hot take, my amen, hallelujah. Um, <laughs> um, you mentioned that you said that that's an un- you suggested that it was an unpopular opinion that many like folks you would engage about that don't agree with that. So you found yeah, really, definitely, like, yeah, mm-hmm. like other Dems or other young people or what? Um, so th- like uh, this is these are people who um, are within this um, like I said this um, civic class of Democratic voters. Um, my reluctant friends mm-hmm. <laughs> who are over there in the Democratic Party or who work for who work for um, elected officials and so on. The only people in this state who are having these conversations pretty much. So when I share these opinions, um, this is so left field of what their paid consultants are saying. It's so left field from what they learned academically um, and in these um, conservative and status quo institutions. It's so left field from their um, paid trainings that they went to and this, you know, super big metropolitan city. And so this is not um, 
um, for them conventional wisdom. And it's coming from somebody who represents the literal antithesis of the um, democratic establishment and the civic class of democratic voters. And so they don't want to hear it. So um, I respect your opinion um, for uh, so many reasons. I, I know I'm biased. I'm your friend. Um, <laughs> I consider you my sis, my little sister. And I don't, and I don't mean little like you're subservient because you, you outclass me in a lot of categories. Um, um, but I want to I want to say like the one thing that struck me about you was how voracious uh, of a, a reader and a learner you are. How did how did you shape your opinions on on modern day politics, or how did you shape your political opinions? Period. Ooh, oh lord, that is a story um, <laughs> deserving of a book that people need to purchase. Um, which, which book? Oh, I love this. Book. <laughs> oh no, I'm saying it's deserving oh. of oh, me writing oh, a book oh. that. Oh, yeah. That people need to purchase, but um, okay. yes. so no, no, so no, to me, that's coming. That's coming. It's oh, it's definitely coming, girl. I got so much stuff um oh. in this oven, but um, <laughs> but so just to be like really briefly, because I could be so long with doing that topic, but just really briefly, um, I um, so um, there's this um, this really good um essay. Uh, that's published that was um, that was published and it's an interview with Bayard Rustin in like the in the 1980s and Bayard Rustin is pretty much talking about um, what uh, what gay liberation is and what it means and what is what is its relationship to um, like racial oppression and so by the 80s Bayard Rustin pretty much says that um, that we really need to like start thinking about um, uh, the LGBTQ community, and he's not using this language because that language wasn't, wasn't available yet. But he's pretty much saying that we need to think about, start thinking about the LGBTQ community, um, and kind of starting to realize like how like you know civil rights did not like finish for anyone in the 1960s, but definitely not for um, people within the Black community who was not um, expressly um, recognized through civil rights legislation. And so someone asked him in the interview, he's like, on the interviewer asked him, he was like, well, you know, um, what kind of made you, um, you know, such an activist? Um, what made you so outspoken on social issues? And he was just like, as a queer person, I didn't have any choice. And that's pretty much the same thing it was for me. I never really had a choice. It was like, if I wanted to exist, I had to change systems. I had to change minds. I had to change um, my um, uh, material condition, social, socially and politically. And so um, everybody has like, you know, what survival looks like for them. And what survival came to look like for me was like learning how these systems work and learning their histories, learning what um, keeps them sustained. And then for me, um, thinking critically about how to dismantle them. Um, so that has come through um, that has come through like being around so many good folks like you and others, um, reading um, really um, great books and um, keeping up to date with um, amazing um, black intellectuals who are writing about these things. Um, and just like, um, just um, being reflective and, um, and um, making sure that like, I am always in community with always in community with these groups and staying in community with other marginalized people because sometimes you can also um, get to a place where you are no longer um, um, in community with the constituency that you say that you speak for or that you say that you are advocating for 
And when you do that, you definitely like lose touch. Um, and we've seen that so much um, with so many of our quote unquote black leaders. I don't think I've, I've gotten angry at this microphone when I, when I um, during one episode when I was airing out a gatekeeper, but I've, I don't think I've ever gotten emotional. Um, <laughs> you make me feel so many di different things. Um, you make me feel hopeful. Ah, <laughs> you don't even know how much. I swear to God, I'm about to cry. Um, nah, seriously, because like, um, and I was telling Melissa Moore this. I love Melissa. I love Melissa. Like, you know, Melissa Moore from formerly, I guess, the former leader of, of We Are Family. She's she's definitely passed the torch to uh, Nigeria, and I'm 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 thrilled. Mm -hmm. But um, I was talking to her, and just like the madness that exists for so many people who who um, have to, as Bayard suggested, you know, create their own systems, um, create their own justice, create their own yeah. path, path mm -hmm. to justice. And, and it's so sad because we don't have representatives. We don't have people really speaking up. And, you know, they're winning races. They're raising money. Um, they're mm -hmm. increasing their public profile for perhaps, you know, for when they leave office and get the book deal and the consulting deal, but they're really not advocate. They're not public servants. And, um, you know, there are a couple of candidates who definitely have tried to at least, um, showcase, uh, an awareness of, um, maybe perhaps LGBTQ issues or even just specific issues facing marginalized folks but but mm -hmm. not enough not enough to my liking and um i just want to say your voice um and the, the amount of thought and reflection you give to uh your current place in this world and in this state um is awe-inspiring um i'm just speaking for myself i i really do hope people understand what kind of gift this uh state has um in you and i I just want you to leave me with one thing because I'm trying not to cry. So I want you to leave me with, <laughs> leave me with two things. Real quick, real quick, and we're going to wrap up. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, what should people read? Ooh, what should people read right now? Yeah, one um, book. One book suggestion. Ooh, um, one book suggestion right now. Um, oh, Lord, this is so hard. Um, <laughs> All right, let's go to the other okay. question, and I'll be thinking about that one while I'm answering. Oh, that is, oh my God, that's so hard. For real? Okay, wait. Now, hold on. now my other question don't make sense. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh. Um. Is will you be voting? You know I yeah I yeah I definitely will be voting. I will be voting. Um, and I am um. To just to kind of like expand it just a tiny bit more though, I will be voting, um, but I am trying to move away from the politics of voter shaming. And so I really want people to stop. <laughs> I really want people to stop um, doing the voter shaming. And I really want people to kind of like recognize that if you don't have a gift, talent or knack for convincing people to vote, then get out of that form of activism. Oh, why are you in my head so much? <laughs> you know, um, and I'm not going to talk about voter suppression with you. I'm not going to talk about Section 5 states, the Voting Rights Act. I'm not going to talk. Come on. Come on. Exactly. Come on. But but what I will say is you're 100% correct. Um, if you don't have a knack, a gift, a gab, a persuasive, you know, type of appeal then ch chill out and um yeah all right so what book name one book 
All right, one book. I'm gonna go with. Um, I'm gonna go with "Ain't I Woman" um, by Bell Hooks, and the reason why I'm gonna go with this book, I, people might say, like, I'm. I think a lot of people right now looking for um, like political strategy and um, some type of um, analysis that um, that makes people more hopeful or optimistic about the terrible state in which we are living in right now politically but for me i'm gonna go with that book because i need people to see what's at stake um for the most marginalized people um and i need people to um kind of like understand that at this like moment at this juncture that we like literally the um the blueprint the the roadmap for black liberation has already been written out by so many um, of our just amazing black feminists in the 70s and 80s. And if people will just revisit those texts, um, Ain't I Woman being one of my favorite and one of the most important out of those texts, if people just kind of revisit those and just really see what's at stake for marginalized communities um, and also what intersectionality, what justice looks like, um in practice i think that's like really important right now i thank you so much for your time nay <laughs> of course thank you so much for having me i, I can't wait until you get out of facebook jail <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm coming like bats are swinging you know it's coming all right well you take care i'll talk to you all right love you talk love to you later you all Bye. right giving me some of your time of course <laughs> can you just introduce yourself for those who do not know who you is <laughs> well i don't know anyone in south carolina who don't know who i is but... that's right what <laughs> but um i'm lexi coburn i am the senior training associate for indivisible uh the indivisible project in dc um, I was formerly the Carolinian and Virginia organizer. So I organized South Carolina from May of 2017 to actually uh, July of 2018. So I've been up and down the state, also North Carolina, Virginia, DC, Delaware, Maryland, and West Virginia. Been around the world and I, yeah, yeah. I am, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know you know the song. Don't make me feel old. Thank you. Don't get me singing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever. I'm probably gonna play that right behind you on a, when I edit this. All right. So, all right. So, um, thank you so much for explaining who you are, what you do, as you were as you were just listing the states and the in the regions that you cover with indivisible, the indivisible. Um, it really helped me put into perspective just the breadth of your work. Um, and I don't know why it took this long for me to sit down and like interview you, um, <laughs> but <laughs> because you bring a lot to the table. And I mean that, um, of course, I'm biased because you're my friend first and foremost, but um, having met you uh, and I'm a very skeptical Scorpio, right? Um, <laughs> As you should be. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember when I first met you and I was... I think I try to be subdued in my reaction. I'm like, who the hell is this young? How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 27. I was like, who is this young 20 something? What? You just blew my, you blew my hair back. And I think I was wearing a bun anyway. But... <laughs> you must wear the bun. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but um but no but in terms of like just your work with uh national campaigns um tell me wait tell you tell me what campaigns have you worked on yeah um thanks for asking so uh, my very first campaign was and this is a funny story and um it centers me into who i am and what i bring to the work i do um i first started phone banking for john Kerry in 2004 when i was 13 years old the reason why i phone banked for him uh was because i was in a social studies class eighth grade uh new Bern, new Bern, north carolina to north carolina and um we had an assignment to do a one-page explainer about the debates. Uh, this is my first political in anything. I watched the debates and I came away thinking, wow, George Bush is an idiot. How can we vote for this person? I went to school the next day, said my piece, and uh, my teacher, Mrs. Harrison, took me aside after class and said that I don't need to insult the president the way I did. And I needed to um, apologize, and I did not do that. So I, um, I got, I received um, in school suspension for that. Wait, 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 so. wait, 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 wait. <laughs> back it up. <laughs> so, wow, this is kind of a common theme. Um, well, at least with my conversation with Naomi, uh, she mentioned current day conversations she's having that weren't well received. Um, but you're saying at the at the young tender age of 13, you espouse a political point of view. And yet, um, you were punished for that. Wow. Yeah. And the way that they kept it, the way that it was done was very, you know, savvy. Um, she, the reason, if you look in my public, if you look in my record, because it's on my record, if you look at it, it'll say that I was on school suspension for insubordinates. Wow. wow. So, but that's the reason behind it. Mm. Um, you know, for people who, you know, quote unquote, don't pay attention. But um, do you think well, how did that experience shape you politically? Oh, it let me know that I was not someone whose opinion was sought after. Hmm. So it it gave me resolve. Um, I come from a whole bunch of hard-headed black women. That's my family. So they instilled that in me to talk whenever I needed to talk. So um, after that, I went to my mom and I was like, "Hey, I need, I need, I want to do this." this happened, I'm sorry. And she was like, I'm not mad at you for getting suspended for that. She was like, I'm mad at the school. I'm like, well, don't go in there and, you know, don't make a scene. <laughs> this is still 2004. People did not understand. And um, a whole different response would have been um, elicited had she gone to school. And I told her not to. I didn't want the trouble. I was actually, that was my last semester down there anyway. I was moving to the bright lights of Raleigh, North Carolina. So it was like a new thing on the horizon. But before I did, I was just like, I want to help this man, John Kerry. What can I do? And she's like, well, you can actually make some phone calls. She took me to the Democratic headquarters in, in New Bern, and I made phone calls. And um, the next day on the bus, <laughs> I had some students come up to me, and they're like, hey, you called my house yesterday. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Right, yeah. They're like, you called my house. I'm like, oh, I was talking. I wanted to call your mom. So I can talk to her about, like, you know, why she should vote for John Kerry. And that was my very first political experience. I carry that with me because I always, you know, don't ever want to forget, no matter what I do, I don't ever want to forget where I come from and, um, like, what this state. Wow. And I guess it also, you, it's an indelible moment, perhaps, for you because of the reaction, the reaction you received from, you know, um, you know, a teacher, uh, so, uh, or, you know, an authority figure in your life. 
Um, did you ever feel, I think, uh, well, how early on did you feel like your identities and you didn't state your identities, you can share that if you want, but however you identify your pronouns, but like, um, how did, how early on did you feel like your identities, um, maybe either clash with politics or that they were different from perhaps those who are around you? Do you remember that at all? Oh, I, I definitely do. Um, my identity has been a journey ever since, um, I was 11 years old, um, and I will define who I am. Um, I am a um, black, queer, heavy. Um, um, I don't know. I don't. I don't want to call myself obese, but I'm heavy. No, There's you. You got up, right. <laughs> yeah. No, you got. Um, how do I call you, Mama? You got body, yadi, 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 yadi. <laughs> yes. Put 12 oddies on there, and you got it right. <laughs> um, but that's who I am. That's how I identify myself. That's how I uh, talk about myself. Um, 11 years old, I was in sixth grade. Same school, by the way, that this suspension happened. Um, young black girl came up to me um, in class and said, "Why do you talk like you're white?" Um, a little bit more background to that. I'm not from North Carolina. I was born in New York and I left New York when I was five years old. Um, so my, you know, as you hear now, I don't, you know, I don't, I guess I don't talk stereotypically black. So, um, everyone, I guess was noticing that and I didn't notice that. Um, so she asked me, you know, why do you talk like you're, uh, you're like you're white? And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not white though. <laughs> I'm not white, and I knew I wasn't white because there were some incidents where I was not allowed to play with some children who were white. Um, so I knew I wasn't white. So I had to find my identity in which, like, who I was around and who I talked to and how I talked to them. I load, I learned code before code was defined. What's code? Uh, what do you mean by code? Yeah, um, yeah. So code is um, especially with. Um, up and rising um, young black people, code is the way that you talk to certain people and it defines how you want to be received and perceived. Code switching. Okay. So um, what that is, is that I learned how to code switch when I would talk to my friends and then when I would talk to my teachers. I talked to them in two different tones. Now I wasn't trying to embody a white person, but I did not want to talk in a way that let them form an opinion about me without knowing who I am. And I did that, in, and I started doing that in middle school. You think that those experiences with your personal identity shape your, your politics right now? Very much so. It helped me prepare myself for the way I was going to go in my life in high school and college, all politically. Because my political activism started at 13 and didn't stop. So I used the code, I used the code switching that I learned very early to help me be perceived. Even with President Obama being elected in 2008 and in 2012, I was still sent to places where I was going to be relatable. I wasn't sent to upper, upper middle class, wealthy areas and outdoors. I was sent to um, African, heavily African American populated places so that I would be related to for transactional votes. Hmm. What, is, what is a transactional vote? A transactional vote is um, basically the way the Democratic Party um, trains its volunteers on how to campaign. Um, they send someone to a door, usually to a, a PO person of color store, knocks on the door and says, hey, you should vote for this person that you don't know anything about. 
Um, you should just go vote on, um, you should early vote or go vote on election day. Okay, bye. They don't ask about what, you know, why you, why you would vote. They don't ask why you should vote. They don't tell you about the candidate. They tell you about the candidate, but in a way that's, that's like, my candidate likes the color pink and I like pink too. Well, the person on the door does, they, they like the color brown. Like, oh, well, I guess they like brown too, but you should just vote for them. It's very transactional because you're not asked, you're not trying to build a relationship with the person. You're not even trying to ask them, you know, what are the reasons why you might vote for this person? It's, um, it has no foundation to it. And that's what the Democratic Party has been doing for so long. And I've been witness to this and I've been complicit in this as well until I stopped it um, by not working on another presidential outside of 2016. Do you identify as liberal? Do you identify as a Democrat? How do you identify? I identify as progressive. Um, I don't really, I don't identify as a liberal. Now, on my voter registration card, it says I am a Democrat, and I tend to vote Democrat. But as I've grown older, as I've seen different things, um, my, my view has shifted more toward a loyalty to party to a loyalty to my people and a loyalty to the people who whose lives are hanging in the balance with these votes and these candidates. Yeah, you said too, but you meant from, so more from party to people, correct? Yes, that's right. And so do you find yourself at the age of 27 with your, um, your upbringing, your unique, your, excuse me, your unique lived experience, do you find yourself, um, have you encountered many other uh, thinkers like yourself who might have a similar background to you or or whatever have you encountered many more 20 somethings that feel the way you do you know I didn't really find them until 2017 which was very odd um and I guess it was equal parts I didn't find them because they weren't um they weren't uplifted as such and then I didn't know who I was either so I was looking everywhere to define who I was and how I fit into these political spaces because for a very long time, I was just a volunteer. Even though I was a volunteer who was training paid organizers, who was running headquarters in Raleigh and Durham, but I was still just a volunteer, so I didn't know how I fit into it. I felt like I wasn't uh, worthy enough to be it, you know, at the big table. So in 2017, when I started really grass, like pure grassroots organizing, I started to meet community organizers and I started to understand what Obama meant by community organizing. These are people, everyday people who are just looking out for their communities and looking for the betterment of their communities no matter what the party or whoever has to say about it. Um, and it meant like meeting people like you, um, meeting people like um, Naomi, um, mm -hmm. Naomi um, Simmons-Thorne mm -hmm. um, who really helped me understand where I fit into it, looking at how they fit into it and understanding that I'm not alone in here because I thought I was very much alone. So, um, and even people in Indivisible, meeting Alicia Jones, Daryl Gibson, um, <clears throat> Abby Johnson, like meeting these people really helped me understand that there are other young black, sometimes queer people out here doing really great work that's not attached to a white candidate. Wow. So, so as you traverse throughout the, you know, Southeast, the, you know, uh, the, the Black Belt in, in your work with Indivisible, and as you can kind of 
find your voice politically and have refined your voice. Um, uh, what do you feel like? What do you just in, uh, instinctually like? What do you feel about the state of politics in South Carolina? Well, I will tell you that 2017 was probably the a huge, huge year of learning for me. Um, it really taught me that North Carolina isn't what I thought it was because when I went to South Carolina, it was an entire different world, but yet the same. Um, I know that I like to compare what I first learned in, tw- in July of 2017 when I when I um, hit ground in South Carolina to now how things have so much have things have changed and um, you can kind of define this around the country but South Carolina is so very uh, unique because South Carolina is a state where it's typically forgotten um, by the Democratic Party um, by progressive activists progressive activism. Uh, that was very much the case in 2017. In 2018, now you see you have Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, uh, Cory Booker, Bernie Sanders going to Columbia and Charleston and Florence. Um, and you have to wonder why they're coming here. Of course, like, you know, if you're any kind of political junkie, you know exactly why they're going there because they're building foundations for 2020. Um, South Carolina is an early primary state. It always has been that way. So um, political activists in South Carolina shouldn't be surprised, but yet, very much yet, they're kind of falling into this farce of, you know, oh, I took a picture with you, so I'm going to vote for you. I'm, I'm, I'm on your team. But I pretty, I wasn't there to witness, but I'm pretty sure no mention of how they stand on issues was ever talked about. My fear for South Carolina, who deserves just as much um, exposure as Texas, Virginia, New York, Ohio, Florida. Um, my hope for South Carolinians is that they kind of look beyond the cosmetics of politics, the cosmetics of what they're about to experience with this presidential primary 2020. I want them to stand up for people. I want them to ask the hard questions. I want them to put these politicians on the ropes and, you know, not think that I could just come here, do a rally, and I got these votes. That's transactionalism. That's, that's, these are politicians who aren't working to make South Carolina a better place. You're just working for some votes and then forget about the state for four years. That's not what I want for South Carolina. That's also what South Carolinians don't want for each other. However, this is the pattern that's been a culture point in liberal politics all over the country. So that being said, I totally get, I totally understand why people are just like flocking and taking these pictures and, you know, um, these things. But I want them to also remember that there's a reason why we're fighting. And sometimes it doesn't have to do with us, like who we are, but it has to do with our communities and the people who don't have the luxury of going 11 a.m. to a rally on a Monday morning. They have mm-hmm. to work. They have to take care of their children. They have to take care of their elderly parents, um, things like that. I want I want our progressive activists in the state to talk for people who can't be there. That's what I want. And I hope that um, as time goes on, we start to shift in that direction. All right. So I'm going to throw this out real quick for you, for your benefit. I don't know if this is going to be legally binding. <laughs> um, <laughs> But the 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 comments and the commentary of Alexi Coburn do not reflect indivisible directly. These are her own statements and comments. That being said, how do you feel about some of these more prominent 
statewide races or some of these candidates who are running for for office um i know your work in specific districts and whatnot um i know your work behind the scenes in terms of working with uh south carolina based groups and making sure that they um you know navigating helping them navigate the endorsement process and whatnot um so you've seen you've had the inside track and without sharing too much inside baseball um, what do you feel? What did you take away from some of these candidates who are vying for, uh, you know, vying for office? Um, what a wonderful question. So excited to answer this. Um, I will start by saying that June 12th of um, 2018, um, looking at the returns from the South Carolina primary brought me to tears. Oh um, my goodness. It oh. definitely did. It brought me to tears because um, we... Uh, not weeks. <laughs> I feel very much a part of South Carolina, even though I don't live there. My address is in Wake County, North Carolina. Um, but you, um, you got family here. I got family there. Yeah. My heart is definitely in Columbia. Okay. Um, and mm-hmm. I have very much roots. I, I planted my roots in South Carolina. But I like to remind people, just in, just in case people get out of pocket. But um, <laughs> I very much know that there were a lot of progressives that day that lost, that lost hope. Um, I feel that in the age of Trump, liberals and Democrats will do anything they can not to elect another Republican, effectively electing another Republican. Because the thing is, is that if we don't stand up for what's right, if we don't stand up for people who need Medicare for all, people who are affected communities who are hiding in plain sight, if you elect a candidate who does not support abolishing ICE, what are we actually talking about? If we don't if we don't push our candidates to see outside the lens of their more moderate neighbors, what are we actually talking about? Um, I also referenced in talking about South Carolina, the election of Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania 18th, I think. And um, you know, we have a lot of talking heads all over, all over, and they were saying that, you know, he ran a moderate campaign and he won and here we're taking that same model and implementing in South Carolina. What we forget is that South Carolina isn't funded the way that isn't funded or built the way South Carolina is. Pennsylvania is not. Pennsylvania is all right. It'll be all right. Is South Carolina going to be okay? How many people do we have that's waiting for Medicaid? How many people do we have on government assistance? How many people are in Charleston? hoping that that hurricane doesn't wipe them out. When are we gonna start talking about the things that really matter and not talking about respectability in politics or Trump? When that day happens, I would be really happy. But what's happening in South Carolina is that during the primaries, there were candidates who were talking about these things being rather unapologetic, unapologetic. And they were cast aside for candidates who cosmetically looked like they can win. Wow. So, so you saw people kind of apply that, that, um, trying to apply that, uh, Connor Lamb strategy here, uh, the appealing to moderates, like people were afraid to take a, I don't even want to call it a risk. I'm like, present a different option, present that to, you know, perhaps be be, be bold. You don't think that folks are being bold? No, I don't. Um, especially in our, um, looking at some of our, um, Congressional candidates. No, they're not being bold. They're not being bold. 
when we're talking about you know legalizing marijuana like who is that really going to hurt when we have a disproportionate amount of young people being jailed for having a dime bag on them why wouldn't you want to legalize something like that to get them out of jail and let's also talk about if you legalize it are you going to legalize it and free people who have previously been jailed on on those offenses are you going to wipe the records are we going to talk about restorative justice or are you doing it just to get a vote so i when are we gonna like when are and i'm saying we i know you say you're not we but but when is when do you think what will it take for south carolina to be bold um to do something like um you know we're looking at texas and we're looking at uh better work his race it's blood red there and who knows how that race will end up i kind of um think that it's going to end up uh you know um mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah. um, um but um but it has been inspiring to watch that race uh what do you think it's going to take for us to have a battle over that we can champion and support um someone who is progressive and because 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 to your knowledge are there anyone, is there anyone right now that survived the primary that is progressive? Oh, one. Um, South Carolina third, uh, Mary Garen. Oh, oh say, say her name one more time, please. Mary Garen. Yes. Mary Garen is amazing. She's up in the upstate, which is traditionally blood, blood red. We were talking about Texas being red. South Carolina upstate might be just a little redder. And um, she's up there being, running a very much a progressive grassroots-based, unapologetic campaign that's inclusive. And she talks about what matters. And she talks about the fact that, you know, I don't support um, the South Carolina 5th nominee who's running because of these reasons. And these, like in South Carolina, that's the third rail, that's the third rail, that's, that's the social security right now in South Carolina. You don't talk about that race. You just, you're just supposed to support that man because he's a Democrat. But the thing was, was that, what are you ta- what, what are you showing to our young women growing up, especially our young black women growing up? Like what, that, that's, that's acceptable? No, it's not acceptable. On any kind of basis, it's not acceptable. And Mary Guerin said, I don't support it either. I donate to her campaign regularly. I donate. I got a t-shirt. Um, I donated right after she went public and that tweet um, was covered by local press. Um, you know, and um, I, I met Mary early on in her campaign uh, and was thoroughly uh, impressed and I was so happy never to be disappointed. Um, and she's just a woman of integrity. What you see is what you get. Um, and I just think, I think she's an amazing um amazing woman and uh, i'm stealing this hot take from my friend kate uh kate b kate if you're listening hey girl um but uh, i stole this hot take from her she was like you know because we were messaging back and forth after i posted i posted uh something on facebook saying that i wonder how women women are responding to mary garen and katie errington's races now people took that i didn't articulate it well but people just went on a rant about I like, I, I would never vote for Katie. I would never vote for Katie because most of my friends are liberal, identify as liberal Democrat. And they just took it as a moment to just go off on Katie, what Katie isn't because she's, you know, she supports Trump and yada, yada, yada. And what I really was, the question I was really trying to beg and I didn't do a good job at was, 
why aren't women on either side supporting these women? Because the GOP has effectively, in some ways, has effectively kind of left Katie, you know, has, has commented on how her voice sounds and she's too this and she's too negative. Um, and so you see a lot of uh, male criticism from the right. And then as far as Mary Guerin's campaign goes, she's the only woman running for Congress She's running a thoroughly progressive campaign, yet I don't see the enthusiasm. And, you know, I, I have just one really, really brief conversation with folks that run her campaign. And when they when she came over to, to blue old old blue Charleston, um, I don't think she got the support financial or otherwise that she thought she was gonna get because this is a you know, this is the blue home of the blue wave, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I was, okay. I was, yeah. <laughs> so like, I was surprised by like, like Kate said, Kate said, you know, for all this smash patriarchy talk, they really are running to the, the, uh, the candidate that shall not be named on this podcast. They're running to a James Smith. They run into a Joe Cunningham. I'm not saying that those candidates, those two candidates aren't worthy of support. By no means am I saying that, but I'm saying you're not even supporting this woman over here. Yeah. yeah, you know what I'm saying? And, and mm-hmm. like, um, I, I, you know, I, I just surprised by, um, for all the progressive talk, for all the Rachel Maddow consumption, um, I was taken aback by the lack of feminine ferocity. I don't even know how to say that, but like, I was really taken aback by the lack of support. And um, that kind of helped me see, um, see things a little more clearly. So, um, you know, I, I went off on a little bit of a tangent, but, um, but yeah, when you see Mary Garen, let me ask a question. When you see Mary Garen, perhaps not getting all of the press and pub and support, what, what is that? What does that tell you? How, what do you feel about that? I feel, a lo- I feel a lot of things. I, um, I fear that I, I, I first and foremost feel that Mary deserves better number one and definitely i hope that she has enough patience to keep fighting for south carolina a lot of times the women who run campaigns in south carolina aren't nearly as embraced as male candidates are and this is and i'm really happy you brought up katie errington katie errington is fascinating to me because um Katie's talking about a lot of things that people can connect to on a level that is outside of a political junkie perspective um, spectrum. Katie Arrington went to the debate and was talking about the uh, traffic jams that would happen on, um, I, I believe that's I-26 mm-hmm. in Charleston. Yeah. And connecting the other cities um, like Horry County, Georgetown to Charleston. She's talking about those traffic jams. And I, for one, hate traffic. I used to live in D.C., and traveled to North Carolina a lot, so I went through all that Northern Virginia traffic. She, if I was not of the political spectrum, if I was not a political junkie, I would perk my ears up and listen to what she would have to say about that. Um, honestly, the thing is, is that there is nuance in politics, and this is what people don't understand. And I also think that, especially in 2017, with this rise of the uh, resistance, which I am a member of the resistance, but I will say for the parenthetical, um, um, star like i'm a resistance member with a star next to it okay <laughs> an asterisk yeah yeah and thank you so much <laughs> i'm like girl your grammar is amazing but <laughs> 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 i got you yeah but um yeah i'm part of resistance with the asterisk um in fact actually one of my profiles social media profiles i say that i'm part of the black resistance because it very much is um separated 
And that's a different conversation for, for a different day, for sure. But back to um, Katie Arrington and Mary Guerin, um, what's very interesting to me, I think that you and I have both seen this, is that, um, you know, the GOP has really left um, um, Katie Arrington behind, almost in favor of Joe Cunningham. And you have to understand, like, you have to actually wonder, like, why? Like, this is, like, this is your darling. This is the person who defeated Mark Sanford who was like a staple in South Carolina politics. How did she do that? Because she was talking about things that matter to some people. Now you can be, you can go to a, a Republican meeting and talk and, and listen to what they have to say and not agree with any of it. Walk away with it. I just want to hear what they're saying, right? You can do that. I think your post on Facebook was very much telling about the way people feel right now because people immediately was like, I don't even know why you're talking about Katie Harrison. What are you talking about Katie Harrington for? Like, no, I'm talking about Katie Harrington because the other candidate isn't talking about shit. So yes, I'm talking about Katie Harrington. What does she have to say? Because uh, one of my favorite movies is The American President um, by Rob Weiner. Oh, wow. (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) Um, And um, Michael Douglas was in a really um, contested battle with the Republican because he kept on going to these press conferences. He kept running his mouth. He kept talking. And they were just, they were like, why did our ratings drop from 66% to 34%? And Michael J. Fox says, because he's the only one who's talking. And that's real. Because people, when you, people, when, when you talk, people listen. Especially for white. And a woman in 2018, hell yeah, people are listening to her. And she would do, and she would do good to actually talk about things that matter to the community. If I was in South Carolina first issue, would I vote for Katie Harrison? Probably not. No, no, because we fundamentally disagree on some things that I hold as um, uncompromisable. But would I vote for Joe Cunningham with a grimace on my face? Absolutely. What What about his campaign um, makes you feel a little less excited? I, I, there's a lot of things that um, I would definitely, if I had the chance to sit down with Joe Cunningham, I'd be like, hi, I need you to remember that um, Black people and POC are not to be taken advantage of or taken for granted. Actually campaign and don't just go to barbershops and churches, please. That's not all where all Black people live. Um, there, um, I worked on the Obama campaign in 2012. And I think that a lot of white people were paying attention to the way that he was he was running his ground game. Now, l- l- let me be clear, his ground game was impeccable, but his ground game really did give a certain stereotype of where black people dwell. And it's not all in churches and um, barbershops. A lot of, um, per- a lot of um, liberal white campaigns came out of that 2014, 2016 with that same kind of ground game and it didn't work. The reason why it didn't work was because they were going to only two places and that was it. It wasn't going to neighborhoods that made them feel uncomfortable. They wasn't going to daycares. They weren't going to grocery stores. They weren't going to other places. And this is what also Joe Cunningham has not done. The reason why I know he hasn't done it was because I know Toby Smith did and got virtually no press, no attention. South Carolina first, the powers that be in the first district made up their minds very, very early. It's not fair. This is not what primaries are for. Yeah, you know, um, in the previous conversation I had with Naomi, she went um, deep into 
she went deep into that in terms of um who chooses the winners who's who's picking winners and losers um and the powers that be um so i can't wait for you to hear that that take on that because it i think you're 100 right i think a lot of the the races that we're um we're watching now were predetermined um and um you know i don't think that's uh specific to south carolina in, in the slightest um but um i you know and naomi touched on this as well you know she was she said she was encouraged by the level of activism or the you know the activist community that has emerged and i and i hope that they i hope that other members of of the quote-unquote resistance um and the black resistance specifically i hope they they learn how to stop forfeiting their power and start leveraging their power and influence to to create change to kind of break that machine that 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 has been built to pick and choose winners so so in 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 closing almost i want to ask two questions that i asked um of naomi um question one being i'm going to start with what book would you recommend that folks read um actually i'm reading this book right now and it's kind of um it's kind of a rare book it's called southern politics in the 1990s um and i forgot the Actually, trying to look that up now, but I forgot mm. the um, author's name. But as I'm talking about, I'll find it. Yeah. This book, what it talks about is that it talks about the shift in politics in the South that happened in the mid '60s with the civil rights era, and it talks about the growth of what of it talks about the growth of populism, and it talks about the growth of liberalism and the extreme growth of conservatism in the South. Because a lot of people, conservatives love to say, well, you know, Martin Luther King was a, a conservative and these uh, racist people, they were Democrats. They like to say that to, you know, think that they're actually making a point. They're, they're making no point. But effectively, what they're saying is that, you know, this is, you're on the wrong side of history. The thing is, is that this book explains why that history was changed. It didn't start with Nixon in 1972. It wasn't with his Southern strategy. Um, what it was, was, was that... Um, Senators like Sean Thurmond from South Carolina saw that um, Democrats were voting, um, conservatives and Democrats were voting for Lyndon Johnson and John F. Kennedy. And they wanted to re-leverage their power. So what they did, they left the party. They left the Democratic Party because John Kennedy was a Democrat from the North. He wasn't a Democrat from the South like Lyndon Johnson was. So they were leaving the party so they can still stay on their segregationist policies. And also, what it does is that it gives a uh, very, very intimate look in each state as far north as Tennessee, as far, um, far east as North and South Carolina, and as far west as Texas. It gives a very uh, intimate look into what was going on between the years of 1962 to 1996. To understand what's happening in our country right now, you have to reconcile with the history. You have to understand what happened in the past. So I love this book. It is enthralling, to say the least. Mm. Um, and as I'm reading it, I'm reconciling with what I know to be true and the things that I've seen, especially with like, you know, um, we have a liberal savior by the name of Bill Clinton, but was he actually liberal? Was he progressive? Not in the least, not in the least. And he has adopted a Southern strategy of democratic populism that incorporated incorporated these leaves of conservatism in the way he spoke about African-American communities, the way he spoke about crime, the way he spoke about women, 
um the way he treated women the way he treated women exactly and what happened was was that because he was a democrat because that's what he did he got away with it and it laid this culture of maybe this is how we should be acting toward our poc communities how toward women and it decimated and it decimated um poc communities you know i'm from new york and then the crime bill in 1994 passed i remember as a little girl seeing people on my street gone Three strikes is real. Mm. That crime bill hurt communities in um, urban areas for years, decades to come. We haven't even gotten a, a good apology for it because he wanted to win a re-election. He felt that winning re-election was to get some of these Southern Democrats who were, you know, yell dogs at best on his side. So that's what he did. A lot of times you'll understand that POC communities and disaffected communities often get the worst, the brunt of the pain from political decisions. Wow. Um, I think when you were when you were explaining how we kind of got to where we are in terms of where the Dems are and where you know where where we are in terms of our political affiliations and how we identify, I, I was looking up. Is the book that is it the new Steve Kornacki book? Because I know he's been making the rounds on various shows. Um, the Red and Blue, the 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. Is that the book you think it is? No, this no? Is actually, and that no, it's not the book. And I'm okay. sorry, and I got the author's name. It's called Southern Politics in 1990 by oh. Alexander P. Lamis. And um, Alexander, he's actually from Charleston. Oh well, okay. Oh, that's a good little gem. I'll, I'll definitely try to find that, uh, find links to that book. Now that I have the title and the author and put it in the, uh, the show notes. Okay. So, so my last question for you is, are you voting? Yes, I am voting. Um, I'm happy. Well, I'm not happy. I'm fortunate that I can vote for a black woman who has been fighting for North Carolina for years. Uh, her name is Linda Coleman. She's running in the North Carolina 2nd District, which is the greater Wake County area outside, a little outside of Raleigh. Um, I, I say I'm fortunate that I can vote for her because that's a vote that I know counts, not only in the ballot bars, but it counts It counts to me too. If I was, in, if I lived in South Carolina, I would, and outside of their district, I would have, I would be going to the ballot box. Very sad, very disillusioned. Um, I, I feel that it is my duty to vote because if I don't vote, I can't, you know, if, if I don't, if I, I feel like if I don't vote, then, you know, I'm not doing what I can to make sure these changes happen. But what we do need to know and understand and reconcile with is that voting is a two-step process. You can vote for a candidate who isn't perfect, but as long as you push a candidate to become what you believe he, she, he or she or they will be, then why are you voting? You need to be able to vote your conscience and vote what's best for your community. What do you feel about that? Um, there's a group, like I love so many of these thinkers and intellectuals that I've encountered on on um, Instagram, uh, via Instagram rather, or via podcast. Um, and even my work, my early work with the Women's March, there's a few people that I, I follow now. And um, a lot of them just keep beating the drum about not voting and, and and actually i'm not condemning that um i've learned i really learned hard not to condemn folks who do not who are choosing not to participate in electoral 
politics or do not believe in electoral justice um, for whatever reason. But but what do you think? I know I said two questions, but what do you think about the younger folks or the more progressive crowd uh, that's choosing who says, you know what, the system's broken, gerrymandering is running rampant, the winners are already predetermined by the powers that be and the political machines, I'm not voting. What do you say to them or say about that? I I completely agree with it. Um, I think that I'm a little outside of that generation because I am 27, but I am also part of that generation in a lot of ways. and. Um, I'm really happy because now I get to answer one of your previous questions. Um, And the best way that people in South Carolina can wake up, especially the politicians in South Carolina can wake up, is that um, if POC don't vote for an entire election. If you look at the exits coming out. Wait, 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 back it up. Fire, fire. (laughs) If I I learn how to do sound effects on my own, I'm going to put like a fire alarm. Girl, say that again. You are you suggesting that if things need to change, that we might have to break the, the fucking machine that's running things? Are you suggesting- absolutely we have to break the machine? And I the, the reason why I don't identify as liberal is because I can say that and not get pitchforks at my door. <laughs> I'm, I'm just you know what I wait, 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 you know what I just I just imagine that that scene from Beauty and the Beast, kill the beast. Yep. Kill the uh-huh. yeah, oh, 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 definitely saying that. Kill that black bitch beast. Kill that black bitch beast. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh, oh, I, I've already gotten that just for shouting down some local gatekeepers. So, um, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, I, and I am not calling you a beast. Let me just clarify that. I was just oh, no, no, no. Of course. Yeah. Um, um, but, you know, it's code. Yeah. Um, that, you know, yeah, people have used. But, but you know what? And I, it's so funny because um, these conversations, you and Naomi are two separate people. You guys, you know, you both do not have the same thoughts on a lot of things. You you are just two different women. And you are, expe- uh, you, you kind of, I believe she said the similar thing. And like, she doesn't, she kept saying, she referred to liberals as, another group and I myself do not identify as liberal either um, or a democrat um, and in South Carolina you don't have to declare a party but you're saying you were saying about liberals and, and, and how, how they would be affected or what were you saying I cut you off no I was saying that um, the way that democratic party um, the democratic party works from a national level that trickles down in South Carolina I hate to uh, reference a Reagan, era, a Reagan era term but here we are um but the way that it works is that um, the block, there's like this, you know, consistent block of uh, voters in um, POC and um, people of color in the Democratic Party. What would happen if people of color didn't vote? That means that Demo- that means that white liberals, white Democrats would have to rely on their own race to bring in numbers and they, the numbers aren't there. We are traditionally not listened to. We are taken advantage of. Transactionalism is run rampant. And also, let's let's not forget racism. Racism. Look at how Stacey Abrams was treated during the primaries in Georgia. Look at the way that Andrew Gillum was uh, treated during his primaries in Florida against um, Grand, um, Gwen Graham, which, uh, which is a establishment darling in Florida. Look at how both of these candidates, strong, 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 progressive, unabashedly so um, candidates, look at how they performed in the primaries. And because of who? Because of POC showing up for these candidates. 
what we don't understand, well, I think that we do understand, but it's not like this widely um, circulated belief because of, you know, power struggles. But um, we control elections, we decide elections, we always have. What would happen in South Carolina if these voters that James Smith, Joe Cunningham, Archie Parnell, I'm not afraid to list them because who's going to, who's going to check me, boo? I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to list them, you know, at me if you need to. Oh, please. This is, this is an unapolog- <laughs> unapologetic podcast. We good. Um, yeah, yeah unapologetic, right? This is, this is the space. Yeah. Um, but what happened if, you know, POC didn't traditionally vote that? What if we actually protested and say, no, I'm not voting for you this time around. You got to find it at some other place, sweetheart. What would happen? But they would lose is what I'm just going to... Spoiler alert! They would lose. (laughs) They would lose. Damn it, you ruined the surprise. (laughs) (laughs) But you need to know. And here's how you need... This is why you need to know because... Because the big, there are two huge, huge myths in Democratic politics. Number one, there is no such thing as a moderate. Oh, wait, okay, this is getting freaky. I swear to God, <laughs> Naomi said the same thing. Oh my gosh! And I, you know, I, you know, I say this. This yes. I call, I, I call it the mythical, magical, mystical moderate white male like well, who who that where that at who is that exactly who are they what are they no 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 at the end of the day that person who would more likely be that be that figure is a libertarian they're not mm. voting democrat or republican either way mm. the other myth in progressive politics is that black people don't vote or people of color don't vote and that's not true at all yeah, I'm gonna. Um, I'm I'm uh, I'm gonna splice in at the end um, that Melissa Harris Perry video that I love reposting about how we the most votinous vote votinous vote getting Yeah, we vote like it's illegal, especially black women. We vote yeah. like it's illegal not to vote. Uh, yeah, yeah, we yeah. definitely vote absolutely. And I'm I'm really happy that we're saying this now because if you look at the exit polls from elections in 2017 in Virginia for governor. And in Alabama for Doug Jones, Black women elected Ralph Northam, Justin Fairfax, Mark Herring, and Doug Jones. Black mm-hmm. women. Still, 43%, 43% of white women voted for Roy Moore and all Republican candidates in Virginia. Democrats cannot afford to keep ignoring Black people. Democrats cannot afford to keep on doing this. They cannot keep doing this because one day this podcast is going to reach enough people and it might happen and we're just going to be sitting back and sipping our tea after that after all that happens they lose and they're just like whoa tom perez and everybody up in the d triple c is going to be like whoa you know maybe we need to maybe we need to make a couple of stops in these places huh that's it's not enough of an apology invest invest in our communities. If you want to win so bad, invest in our communities and actually mean it. We're not dumb. We're not dumb. We shouldn't be taking advantage of like this and enough is enough. It's gotten that desperate. And um, I love to vote. I vote for dog catcher if I have to. <laughs> but if I absolutely have to, I won't vote. So someone could pay attention. It's a cry for these young people who are on Instagram and um, the, and are just saying they're not going to vote. It's a cry for help. I remember I saw this video of this woman in Colombia um, 
and she was videotaping, um, she was um, on her handheld, she was videotaping some, um, this, this crowd in front of the state house and she came across um, two black youths and put the camera in their face and was just like, hey, are you gonna vote? And he, they were like, no. I know who you talking about. <laughs> I was dumbfounded for like five seconds. I'm like, oh yeah. I knew it was gonna come to you. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, she she thrusted that camera phone and that trusty tripod into that person's face and asked mm-hmm. them, are you gonna vote? Are you gonna vote? And their response was, no, I'm not gonna vote. And they were like, well, what do you mean you're not gonna vote? I get that everywhere I go. I even got that in California. It was like, well, they have to vote. First of all, watch your tone. Second of all, I don't, my mama told me I don't have to do anything but stay black and die. Mm. None of that included voting. Mm. If it's not beneficial for me to vote, why am I going to do it? That's how far, that's how broken the system is. Especially after 2016. And it's amazing. We got so lucky because after 2016, there'd be a lot of disenchanted people with his with, with his presidency now. We got off really lucky. This is a really important election and I will vote, but I will never ever shame anyone for not voting. I won't, especially a person of color. I won't do it because I get it. I get it. I totally understand. And until the GCCC or whoever the powers that be, pay attention. And sometimes I have a feeling that's gonna happen on state level and then trickle up to the to the national level that's probably exactly what's going to happen and it's probably going to be in the hands of Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum and Ben Jellison in Maryland and um Christine Hallquist in um Vermont and Paulette Jordan and um in Idaho these groundbreaking campaigns people unapologetically running and uh, and understanding that you have to support the people who are going to vote for you it's not enough to knock on someone's door and be like hey you're gonna go vote Get to know those people. They're going to be your constituents. We need to use the power of a vote like we use the power of a gun. Mm, Since we love guns so much. (laughs) On that note. (laughs) (laughs) Because we'll be here all night. (laughs) No, and I I don't mind. And I'm not even editing out anything. I'm going to keep it um, raw and uncut. um, Just to put a drug reference in the middle of my political podcast, but um, I, I really want to say thank you so much for your perspective. Your voice is not heard enough. And I see you. I love you. And I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate all the work you do for everyone in the South Carolina electorate and beyond. Thank you so much, Alexi. No problem. I, I have like one more thing I just want to say. <laughs> Go ahead. For everyone listening, um, thank you so much for listening. Please support Tamika Gaston. She is a fucking warrior in Charleston, doing a damn work, often at the expense of everyone saying that it's somebody else. No, it's Tamika Chantel Gaston out here doing this work every day. Support her any way you possibly can. She's the best, oh. and I will find you. Oh. <laughs> okay, um, you can edit that part out. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to leave it together. Thank you so much for having my back, y'all. I really appreciate that. Thank you. This episode was a little longer than usual, um, but I thought it was important to hold space 
uh, to hold hella space uh, for uh, black women, queer black women, uh, women who, again, and I'll just sound so redundant and I'll sound like I'm repeating myself almost in every episode, but but for women uh, who, who are living on the margins, who are fighting uh, for liberation, for black liberation, for trans liberation, um, it's important. It's important to to hold space for them and to create avenues uh, and platforms where they can just speak their minds. And I hope that um, when you listen to Lexi, especially um, someone who's working, uh, who's working within an organization who's trying to create positive change, uh, and you listen to a younger person, and I say younger because I'm, I'm 37, um, so I'm 10 years her senior, and I believe, uh, you know, same thing with Naomi. But, but it, it's time to listen to those who come from a different walk um, and to listen to what they have to say and what they have to offer. And I'm just so fortunate. I'm grateful. It's never lost on me how, um, how amazing it is to have friends who are so smart, who are so intelligent. So I felt it was important to feature their voices instead of hearing some of the same hot takes on cable news listen to your community um and also i I want those who are listening to be empowered to be that voice within their communities uh you know what i'm doing this podcast uh my friends what what they're doing is just making a choice right they're making a choice to be heard and as naomi referenced you know where there is no lane where there is no no trail that is already blazed we have to kind of create those avenues and that's what uh poc folk uh have been doing ever since uh we've we've been in this country we've had to create lanes and you know the most impact we've had is when we didn't have rights when we weren't viewed or valued as equal citizens and that's when we had the most impact so we need to keep that in mind as we head to the polls, as we head to the voting booths, um, and as we energize our communities, we need to know that we do have the power. And you don't have to forfeit it. You don't have to give it all to an elected official. Um, and, ele- and an elected official cannot solve all of our problems. We know that voting is just one form of civic engagement. Civic engagement can take on many different forms. It could be speaking up. It could be going on Facebook Live. It could be what my brother Shaquem did uh, a couple of weeks ago when he saw injustice, when he saw kids in his community being uh, being assaulted and attacked by racism and white supremacy. And he just turned his camera phone on, as he oftentimes does. That's what you do. That's civic engagement. And so I want folks to start leveraging their own power. However small it is, however modest that amount is, you have it. You know, I I often say, lately I've been saying this a lot, you know, we all have choices. They may not always be all the best choices, but we all have choices. And so when when you feel powerless, when you feel voiceless, it's important that you speak up and it's important that you use whatever avenue you have. It could just be standing on your porch and engaging, you know, passersby. Um, So I encourage everyone as we kind of, you know, head into the home stretch of the midterms and as we think about 2020 and the 2020 census, uh, I, I want you all to remember you have power. You have more power than you think. And you can create those avenues like our foremothers and forefathers here in South Carolina have done. I also want to leave you with, with just one name, Septima Clark. Anyone who knows me knows how much, how valuable her work has been to me. 
I don't, of course, I, I never met her, and um, I've only been at events with her family, and I've gotten to hear these great stories and work with students at the College of Charleston uh, who have, you know, paid homage to her and, and academics who have paid homage to her. But her work is very important to remember on a day like today, at a time like today. If it weren't for Satima Clark, we wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be politically activated. She was a trailblazer here in Charleston, South Carolina. And within the show notes of this podcast, I'll link some articles or some content um, that showcase just who she was. And every time I meet someone who does not know who she is, I'm always taken aback. Um, we have streets named for her. And, and there are a couple of plaques here and there. But, you know, as Charleston tends to do, they tend to hide our history. And so it's time for people to start to rediscover Septima Clark rediscover her work around voting rights and access to voting and uh, just her overall uh, her, her overall monumental movement um, during the civil rights uh, movement so um, yeah we need to, we need to recognize a Charleston great and pay homage and and like Naomi said there are so many who have come before us who have created a blueprint all we need to do is st- take a step back and revisit that history and follow that blueprint. Okay, so that's it. That's my spiel. This is a long episode. If you roll with me, that's great. Hopefully you put me on in the gym or while you're washing dishes or, or taking care of your house or your kids. Um, hopefully you got something from it. But also I hope that you just keep rocking with me be- as we grow this, this podcast. I also want to give you a heads up. Um, again, this is October 22nd at the, at the recording of this episode, but on October 28th, we are having, um, I am linking up with my friend Kate Counts. Kate is uh, the founder of Evolve Charleston Yoga, and she already holds space at the poorhouse, the Charleston poorhouse on James Island, um, where she does her yoga. She does amazing work in the yoga community. Uh, she's very outspoken and just a, just a rad person. And so on October 28th, we're linking up again um, on the poorhouse deck for Vinyasa Yoga. Now, I came up with that name. So if any pure yogis out there uh, want to, you know, give some feedback, <laughs> please direct it to me. Um, however, um, I, I think it's a, it's a great event because what we're trying to do is um, pretty much reiterate what I've said during this episode. We want folks to find their voice, to nurture that voice, and learn how to use it and, and empower women and femmes uh, and anyone in attendance to use their voices. And we're doing this again as we ramp up and head into the home stretch of this year's midterm elections. So we want to engage folk and we want to tell people about Roll Call, the grassroots uh, get out the vote initiative that I created. We want to show, you know, tell people how they can help others uh, get to the polls and how we can help others just, you know, prepare for, again, uh, being civically engaged throughout uh, their area. So uh, look out for that. That's going to be in the show notes as well. So Vinyasa Yoga, October 28th. And yeah, that's it. Well, thank you so much for all of your time. Thank you for listening and growing with me. Um, as usual, you can hit me up via email uh, at Tamika at CharlestonActivistNetwork.com. And that's spelled T-A-M-I-K-A. That's how you spell my name. So Tamika at CharlestonActivistNetwork.com. If you have any feedback, constructive or otherwise, uh, I'm game to hear it all. Until next time, take care, everyone. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye.